This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. This week, the United States made good on a bipartisan promise to end our intervention in Afghanistan. After 20 years of military and civic support, our ultimate session of governance to the Taliban has left those Afghans who joined our efforts to reform the country with little hope in the demonstrably brutal regime that is to follow. This cruel reality has led many hundreds of thousands of allied Afghan interpreters, contractors, and civil servants to try to flee for their lives aboard coalition forces aircraft. Those fortunate enough to be airlifted by the August 31st deadline may be free from the Taliban, but now must face an uncertain future with virtually no resources and no support from their native country. How will the US and the world help these refugees who served our mission until this tumultuous departure? My guest today is Jeff Thielman, President and CEO of the International Institute of New England one of the region's oldest and largest nonprofit social service organizations for refugees and immigrants. Since 1980 in New England, they've assisted more than 15,000 refugees through resettlement, education, career advancement, and pathways to citizenship. Jeff will share with us the U.S. definition of refugee, how refugees are vetted and supported before they arrive in the United States, and how his organization supports these new refugees once they arrive. We'll discuss the likely journey of those Afghan refugees fortunate enough to recently escape Afghanistan, who will ultimately find their way to our region in the coming weeks and months. When I return, I'll be joined by the leader of the International Institute of New England, Jeff Thielman. Hubwonk is a production of Pioneer Institute, a Boston-based think tank that seeks to improve the quality of life in Massachusetts and beyond. Pioneer is a 501c3 organization that relies on your support please visit pioneerinstitute.org to make a tax-deductible donation today. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by President and CEO of the International Institute of New England, Jeff Thielman. Welcome to Hubwonk, Jeff. Thank you, Joe. Good to be here. Well, Jeff, I, I read uh, uh, in your uh, bio that you're actually a, a Boston College graduate and you also went to BC Law. Uh, what took you from uh, uh, the, uh, the heights over to uh, the world of refugees? Oh, wow, that's a long story. I mean, I, I've, uh, I, when I graduated from Boston College, I was a Jesuit international volunteer in Tacna, Peru. And uh, I was there for three and a half years and I worked with uh, street children and I was a teacher at a Jesuit high school. And so that experience profoundly impacted me and got me thinking about the broader world. And then I came back to the US. I went to Boston College Law School. I finished, I practiced law for a short time. I went in the business world. And then the Jesuits were starting a school on the Southwest side of Chicago called Cristo Rey Jesuit High School, which means Christ the King. That's a school where students work to earn their tuition. And um, I got involved in that school then I managed the scale up of Christo Ray schools across the United States. And then I ran the Boston School. Uh, and so that was sort of an 18 year journey with the Christo Ray schools. And then this mission came calling and it appealed to me because it was a chance to work with refugees. I had worked uh, a long, you know, for most of my career, I worked with immigrant groups attending our Christo Ray schools. And in Peru, I was, you know, a foreign person in, a, in another land. So I had a 
an affinity and a desire to help refugees. And this opportunity came along and I took it. Well, I'm glad I asked. Those are some impressive credentials. Uh, you clearly thank demonstrated you. your commitment to uh, your fellow man. Uh, thank you. So for the benefit of our listeners who aren't uh, working in this realm uh, as you do, uh, define for us, what is a refugee? And, and, and particularly, I want to d- d- differentiate it from, from an immigrant, someone who hasn't been born here but wants to live here. What is a refugee? Yeah, so under United States law, a refugee is someone who is located outside of the United States. They have left their country of origin. They're a person uh, who is of special humanitarian concern to the United States. And they were persecuted or have a fear of persecution due to uh, their ethnic background, their religion, their nationality, their political uh, party affiliation or political opinion or membership in a particular social group. So they're a persecuted person. They can't go back to their home. And the main difference, I would say, you know, with, I mean, a refugees actually is, a, is in the United States law is actually a category of immigrants to this country. But the, the main difference between a refugee and a traditional Im- immigrant is choice. Immigrants are fleeing something, or refugees rather are fleeing something. Uh, they don't have a choice. They can't go back home to their homeland. And uh, migrants often, people migrating here often can't. So the world's a, a pretty bad place in many cases. How many refugees are there? I don't mean by legal status of determined yeah. by the United States, but how many people do you estimate are fleeing for their lives around the world? Yeah, so the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees estimates there's 82.4 million uh, displaced people. Those are people who could be forcibly displaced within their countries. Um, those are people who are seeking asylum elsewhere. And then of those 82.4 million, 26 million, 26.4 million, something like that, are categorized as refugees, people with a well-founded fear of persecution, living outside of their country of origin, uh, who are don't really have a place to settle. So that's a subset of displaced people. So what precipitates um, large numbers of, of refugees? I'm going to guess because we're, um, we're leading with our show, we're going to be talking about uh, refugees from Afghanistan. I'm putting war at the uh, top of the list, uh, but wh- where else, uh, what generates refugees? War, conflict, persecution, uh, terrorism inside a country. Uh, and you know, essentially, these are people who cannot settle in their native nation or in a country that is uh, near their country of origin. Uh, and so they can't, they're stateless. They can't find a home. And so the United Nations and uh, governments around the world have a system set up to resettle them in other countries. I see. Now, um, in the context of the United States versus the rest of the world, do we as a nation have a quota of, of uh, refugees? Uh, do we say we'll have uh, no fewer than 10,000 or no more than 100,000? Is there, is there some uh, number we assign each year that we will either not fall below or go above? How do we know, how do we decide how many refugees we take on each year here in America? So, so the, pre- I mean, the, the, the way this works is the president of the United States under the law uh, by October 1st each year has to consult with Congress and then determine the number of refugees who can come into the United States. So the averages were 75 to 80,000 refugees for a long period of time. Uh, President Trump came in and tried, uh, part of his policy was to diminish the number of refugees coming into the country. And he brought it down, uh, he set the limit at 15,000 for the current fiscal year. Uh, and so far we've resettled uh, not many refugees in this country this year. I see. So uh, that is determined by the country, uh, by the leadership of the country, um, and it's been adjusted downward recently. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the former President Trump 
you know, reduce the, the number of refugees who are admitted to the United States. Um, and President Biden has indicated that he will be increasing that number. That uh, hasn't formally happened yet, but, you know, we're a month away from uh, his, re he's required a month from now to announce the number of refugees that will be coming into the country in fiscal year 22, which starts federal fiscal year 22, which starts on October 1st. And um, we'll, we'll hear what he has to say. Now, we're going to talk about Afghanistan specifically, but let's talk in more broad terms. How does a one who now is, uh, let's say, a potential refugee, persecuted, escaping their country, fleeing for their life, how does one get from where they are to the United States or other countries, uh, um, for that yeah. matter? Is there an intermediate step? Uh, is there some common place where they all get brought? And we're going to talk about Afghanistan, but I'd like to know, how do they get from A to B? Um, yeah, sure. So the way it works is the uh, United States, uh, well, the U UN High Commissioner for Refugees categorizes someone as a refugee. Uh, once they're categorized as a refugee, um, the United Nations or uh, non-governmental organizations uh, help try to help these folks resettle somewhere around the world. Only 1% of all refugees will resettle, so most will not resettle. And the United States uh, takes the, the hardest uh, cases, the most difficult humanitarian cases. And so when um, the United States uh, gets a case, there is a referral from the United Nations to the uh, U.S. State Department. Um, there is an interview process uh, that involves U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service officials, State Department officials, Department of Defense officials that do screenings of all refugee candidates to come to the United States. The process can last up to two years. When that process is complete, they are cleared for arrival in the United States. They get a loan through the, uh, uh, through, through the United Nations, the IOM, uh, an office of the uh, United Nations. And then um, they take that loan uh, and, and buy a plane ticket and come to the United States. We get involved as a resettlement agency doing work here in New England at the end of the process. We get notified by our national office. There are nine organizations at the national level that manage the distribution of refugees around the country, one of which is the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants. That's our national uh, voluntary agency, we call it. They contract with the federal government, the uh, USCRI contracts with us, and then we uh, accept a certain number of refugees a year. We get a notice a few weeks before they come. We find them housing and, and start to work, uh, prepare to do case management and other work. Uh, I want to dive down into how that process all works, but um, I don't want to uh, glide over the process of getting from um, you know, be, being admitted into the United States, yeah. the, the vetting process. And, you know, we all read the news, yeah. uh, you know, we, we're compassionate as Americans, but naturally concerned that um, we want good people here um, and we don't want bad people here. How right. do we uh, ensure, uh, particularly when considering someone fleeing from a, a country that's literally collapsing, documents are deliberately destroyed so as to not incriminate them? Uh, how does one, how how can one be vetted with literally nothing to show for, the, the you know, their entire life? Well, I mean, the interview process is an intense one that the U.S. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Service officers perform. And I, um, I have never been to a refugee processing center, but I've actually spoken to several members of Congress who have, who have actually witnessed this process. And it is a very uh, thorough process in which you, um, uh, as, as an applicant, you're asked about all sorts of things. If they look through your social media history. They ask you very specific questions of where you lived, what happened. Uh, the United States government has data on all sorts of incidents that occurred around the world. So if you say something that is not accurate about an event that might have occurred in your hometown, chances are very good. The U.S. government knows about it. Um, so uh, there, 
you know, there's a lot of questions that are asked of people. Um, and I will tell you from our experience and my experience of doing this job now for six and a half years, the refugees who come here are seeking peace. Uh, they're human beings just like uh, you and me. Uh, but uh, they're, they're people coming here seeking peace. They're people with grit. They're people who want to work hard. They want to contribute to the country. They know what they're getting into when they come here. And um, they're very, very loyal and excited to be Americans, actually. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think I've seen the result of the vetting process and our end is that people are well vetted. Uh, they are uh, very peaceful people and they are not uh, people that are coming here to do anything violent. Well, um, and that uh, I think your argument is also buttressed by the fact that, uh, again, we'll focus on Afghanistan here. Uh, we had so many um, helpers, right? Uh, everything from uh, interpreters to uh, contractors. Um, these are people who literally work directly with the United States government uh, to make that place a better uh, country. Um, how many uh, of, of now, again, we're talking Afghanistan here. How many uh, re refugees have we gotten from that country? How many additional ones are approved owing to the fact we've just left? Uh, we've seen the planes. Um, you mentioned a relatively low number for the entire number of refugees we'll accept from around the world in the U.S. Um, you know, it was like Afghanistan, for our listeners, is a country of 40 million people. Uh, quite a few of those were helping us, uh, fighting alongside us. Uh, how many of those uh, are apt to uh, come to the United States, either already or soon to be here? Well, I mean, we've, we've so the the combined uh, co the coalition forces and the United States uh, forces uh, evacuated about 125 or so thousand people, something like that. Of those, our understanding is that 80, 70 to 80 thousand are designated for the United States. Um, those in of, of those include of the 70. 75 to 80,000 people that were evacuated for the United States. Some of those people were U.S. citizens. Uh, something like 6,000 people were U.S. citizens. Um, another uh, 74,000 people uh, or so, 73, 74,000 people are people that are in various categories. So some of those folks are special immigrant visa holders. They're people that have worked with the United States government that met the minimum uh, number of years of service to the United States government. Some of them are petitioning um, for other uh, other considerations. So there's a there's a priority two status of, uh, of special immigrant visa holders and refugees, and those are people that did not meet the minimum number of, of years of service as a, or, or time of service uh, with the U.S. government, but have performed uh, or supported the United States government in other ways. Then there are people that have been designated as parolees, Afghan parolees. That means they're they they. They're coming to the United States. They're going to be admitted here because there's a humanitarian concern. They're going to be admitted because of they're going to be the United States government has determined they're going to be persecuted by the Taliban. They got on a plane. And when they come here with that status, they have to figure out their path uh, with help of organizations like ours. And so their path might be um, to complete their special immigrant visa application and, and get that status. Their path might be. Uh, to uh, apply for asylum in this country uh, <clears throat> and get asylum here. Um, and their path might be that, you know what, based on all the information, we got you out of Afghanistan in a hurry, but based on all that we're seeing here, we can't take you in this country. That may happen too, we don't know. So a lot of people got on the planes very quickly. It's happened so fast that organizations like ours don't have enough information to really make judgments yet about who we're getting and what their status is. But it's their status varies. Their their immigration status at this moment in time varies. 
So you, you mentioned a term, and I've, I've heard it quite often recently, a special immigration visa, SIV, yep. uh, that's being used. Uh, let's um, fast forward. Uh, let's say these people have gotten on the planes, they go through the vetting process, and they're marked okay. You know, they've gotten their loan, uh, they take the plane ride, and they step off the plane. What does a special immigration uh, visa entitle the bearer to to do? Can they can they work? You know, well, get, get a mortgage. I, you know, I, I'll throw it all at you, and uh, you, you answer what you like. Sure. I mean, so when a person comes here on a special immigrant visa, um, they are uh, they have the visa to start out with. They can work. Yes, they can get an employer authorization document, a social security card, and they can work. And we help them to work. Uh, after a year in the United States, they can get a green card. And then after five years in the United States, they can become a citizen of the country and vote and take part in our democracy. And so uh, if they're in that category, yes, that is the exact uh, path they would take. Wonderful. Uh, but as you mentioned, some may not um, clear the bar and ultimately not not get entry um, to. Yeah, to we hope the... that. I mean, I, I, mean I, I'm, I, I don't know. It, you know, I really I can't comment because we, we uh, the, the, it was it was a chaotic. It looked to me and looked to us in this field. Uh, from afar that, you know, 80,000 people or so got on planes destined for the U.S. or for U.S. bases. And um, uh, it's, and, and they were probably in various immigration statuses, various uh, stages of their of their petition for uh, entry into the United States. That's how they got on the plane, I think. But, uh, you know, we just don't have enough information yet to determine, you know, what their legal status is going to be. But I, I'm hopeful and all of us who do this work are hopeful, but that by the time they actually land on U.S. soil, these are people that will stay in our country. All right, let's assume that we've done our job and the right people are stepping off that plane. Um, what are, I think the terms are, are used, wraparound services that these uh, yeah. these new um, entrants to the U.S. get. Um, they've gotten a loan, you mentioned, uh, for their plane ride. Um, you know, who meets them on the tarmac? And, uh, you know, again, you're coming from Afghanistan. Uh, you know, you got a long way to go. Um, wh wh what is the process? How do, how do you help them? Yeah. Now, let me clarify one thing. In the traditional refugee resettlement situation, you get the loan. I don't know if people got loans to get on those planes. I think they might have just got on the plane. I, just, right. I don't know. It all happens so quickly. I would say so. Um, what we do to help people is, you know, we resettle uh, people who come to the United States. We receive them at the airport. So we're the very first point of contact when they get off that plane. They get to know us and our case managers very well. We get to know them very well right from the beginning. Then um, we, you know, take them to an apartment that we find for them. We enroll them in medical services. We help enroll their children in school. We uh, do, you know, this is all in the category of what we call in our business case management. And so we uh, help uh, them to uh, learn English. We have a cultural orientation pro program for them. So we you know, show them around their new city, uh, show them what a public library is. And then uh, we help them to find a job. So a big part of what our team does is to help them find a job, help them to assess their skills, assess their English. They enroll in our English classes. We have a financial literacy component to our English classes. So they learn about the American uh, financial system, how that works. And our goal is to help them integrate as quickly as possible into their new communities. Um, how do you go about sorting people? I'm sure we've got on those planes or some of the people who arrived, some were um, uh, truck mechanics and some, I don't know, maybe there were some brain surgeons in the lot. So there's going to be a range of, of people who are going to step off that plane. Uh, who, who, you know, how much do you know before uh, you go up and shake their hand? You don't know much. You really don't. You know their name, you know their background, you know their age, um, you know where they're from. You don't know much. So our case managers go to work right away trying to get to know them. 
and our employment specialists ask all sorts of questions and try to connect with them on a human level is to help them to understand that, well, they may have been a surgeon in uh, in Kabul. Uh, it's quite possible, but you know that the path to becoming a surgeon or, or a doctor in the United States is a long one. And so, and we have, by the way, we just as an aside, we have several volunteers who are doctors who have helped um, some of our uh, people who have arrived to have a medical background on a path towards uh, getting uh, certified in the United States. It's a long one. But what we mostly say to people, look, this is your reality right now. You're going to have to you're going to have to get a job doing something that you, were, you may have never done before, may have not done since you were a young person, like stock shelves, work in a restaurant, work in a hotel. So it is a process to get people to say, your life has now changed. The job and the work you once did in your country, you in all likelihood you can't do right now because you don't have the certification and qualifications and often language skills to do it. So our staff works very hard to get people to realize this. And uh, that's a hard transition for a lot of people. What do you think um, uh, your organization, I'll give you an opportunity to toot your own horn. What do you think you do really real well? And I'm sure you anticipate, I'm gonna ask the follow-on question is, you know, what, what's really not done well and you know, deserves more attention and perhaps development. So what do you do well? Well, let's start with Yeah, that. I would say, you know, what, what all of the organizations around the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that resettle refugees uh, from around the world, what is unique in our field is that we are the first ones to meet refugees at the airport. We're the first ones to make contact and develop friendships and relationships with them. That's what makes all of us who do this work in, this, in the country, the 200 or so agencies that do this work, that's what makes us unique. What makes the International Institute of New England unique is that we have a comprehensive continuum of services for refugees and other immigrants. And so you, we, we, we are saying is, is that we, we can help people from airport pickup all the way to citizenship. So we have uh, you know, comprehensive case management for people who are new to the United States, helping them to settle uh, in their new nation. We then have uh, a whole range of English classes from beginners to advanced, so people can progress in their English skills and get stronger in English. We have skills training programs that prepare people for jobs in healthcare, hospitality, and in construction and maintenance. And then we have an immigration legal services program uh, that is staffed by a competent group of attorneys that uh, is adjusting people's status uh, in the United States every day. So about 1,200 clients in that program. And that, and that includes helping people to get a green card, eventually become citizens of the country if they're eligible. So I think what makes us unique is the comprehensive set of services. What can we do better? I mean, the more resources we have, the faster we can help people integrate into the economy. I mean, I always tell people that right now we have a shortage of talent and workers all over New England, big shortage uh, of workers. Uh, and you go to any state in, this, in, the, in New England and there's a shortage everywhere. Uh, and the faster we can integrate people, the quicker we can train them, the more money we have for job training and English training, the more quickly uh, these folks can integrate into the new communities and contribute to the economy and to our culture. You, you mentioned uh, yours is a comprehensive program that gets them from, as you say, from the from the uh, airport to citizenship. Um, do other organizations like yours uh, specialize? In other words, are there, um, um, you know, you mentioned the United States takes the most hard luck cases around the world, right? Are, are, do you specialize in um, a particular kind of uh, refugee, be it uh, from a certain part of the world, a certain religion, a certain uh, cultural background, or or does everybody sort of, you know, take what 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 comes their way. I mean, I think you take what comes your way. I mean, one of the things we've developed in, so we have three locations, Boston, Massachusetts, Lowell, Massachusetts, and Manchester, New Hampshire. Manchester, we resettle mostly families. Lowell is a mixture 
of families and a few single cases. And in Boston, when we take a case in Boston, either there is a U.S. tie, there's a relationship already between someone outside of the country and someone living in the Boston, in Boston or the Boston area, or we actually have developed a niche within our market, within our uh, national network of serving people who are single uh, cases. So it, it might, it's often men who have, uh, may have, may have uh, children, uh, partner uh, overseas, but they come here on their own um, and we place them in shared housing with other men. So we might have uh, four people in an apartment, uh, two per bedroom in Lynn or Dorchester or other places. So I think one of the unique things we've figured out that to make resettlement work in a city as expensive as Boston, uh, we've got to, we've got to be very careful uh, to take about taking any families, large families. It's just not going to work here because of the economics. And so we haven't taken any large families in the past several years. I see. Um, you mentioned a couple cities, uh, Boston, Lowell, um, uh, and uh, Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, again, you can't see into the future, but anticipating uh, the Afghanistanians um, that are, are Afghanistanis who are coming um, in the near future, where are they likely to settle? Again, you, you already made it clear maybe the, the single men will be in Boston and the family's more likely to be Lowell or up in New Hampshire. So our our plan right now, we've told our national office that we, we have um, a large number of Afghan uh, special immigrant visa holders and other Afghans in Lowell, in, in greater Lowell. We've resettled 335 people uh, from uh, Afghanistan since 2015, since I've, I've been in charge of the organization. And uh, of those 330 or so uh, people from Afghanistan, um, we've placed probably two thirds uh, in Lowell or greater Lowell. And so there is a very strong uh, community there of, of, of Afghans in Lowell. Um, they're very welcoming. And, you know, the special immigrant visa uh, holder community, these are people that work with the U.S. government uh, in Afghanistan. They, they, the, the word in the, in the network is that Lowell is a good place to live and work. And uh, so Lowell is probably where our organization will be resettling the most Afghans uh, in this state. Other organizations across the state will be resettling Afghans in, you know, Worcester, Springfield and other places. I see. I see. Um, is there any measure uh, you, you mentioned it and it provoked this question? You've been doing this for a while and you've had other Afghan refugees in the past. Do you measure your success rate? In other words, I, you know, it's not necessarily attributable to your success or failure, but, uh, you know, some perhaps some uh, countries have uh, uh, refugees that are able to hit the ground running and others take much longer. Um, how do you measure how well you're doing? Well, you know, first of all, I, I will say that, I, you know, I've met now hundreds and hundreds of refugees in this job, and they are people with enormous grit. I mean, when you meet a refugee who has been through all they've been through and they get to the United States, the one thing that comes to mind with every single person I've met is just grit. They are, they are, they are ready to work. They are, they have been through quite a bit more than most of us, more, certainly more than I have sure. uh, growing up in uh, the suburbs of uh, Connecticut where I grew up. Um, so these are, these people have grit. Um, you know, what, what I would say is that they um, they work, what we measure success on is is how quickly um, they integrate into the community. And integration in the refugee resettlement field is a, is a, is a topic that is, uh, you know, debated uh, at length by academics and other people who do the, who study this field. But integration means you have a job, um, you're paying your bills, uh, integration means your English skills are advancing. Integration ultimately means that you uh, become a citizen and vote and take part in elections and take part in the community and and, and get involved in, in in the city or state where you live. Um, so we measure it that way. We also measure success 
um, and this is m much more, it's, it's anecdotal, but by the success of the children of uh, refugees who come to the United States. I mean, you, you see refugees, uh, you know, just like I mean, the, the immigrant story in the United States just keeps going. People forget the fact that um, I, my background, I'm part German, part Italian, part French. Uh, so my background, you know, all these folks came to the United States. They were all ethnic minorities at one point in time. You know, Germans and, and Italians made fun of by other people because of the way they talked and walked and did whatever they did. Eventually, they became they became part of the, the population. They integrated. They became Americans. So we measure it by integration, and it always happens. It always happens. Anybody who comes to this country, any group who comes to this country eventually integrates because they get jobs, their, their kids get edu an education, their kids go to school and play sports and get involved in things. And, you know, that's how we create this country. Wonderful. Well, I think my, our listeners are, are very excited. You've, you know, this is a, a great show building with a crescendo. Uh, this is a great time to ask, okay, you've got resources. Some are coming from uh, the state, um, um, uh, but you're out there, you're uh, making it happen. Uh, what resources, if our listeners were, they don't just listen, they, they do, uh, what can listeners do or fellow citizens, uh, do to help you succeed in your, in your, uh, mission? So right now, I mean, first of all, the, the International Institute of New England requires about 50% of our funds need to come from private sources, uh, fundraising, and then a modest amount of fees from different programs that programs that we have and 50% from, from public funds. That's just how we're funded. So you know, people can write a check. They can go to uh, iine.org, uh, and that is the best way to learn about our mission and make a contribution. We have a special fund right now for Afghanistan because many of the people that will be coming uh, to our services very soon uh, will not be eligible for public benefits, and so they're going to need extra support, and this is a chance for people to make a contribution that can uh, help uh, people directly. Well, we like green money. It's fungible. You can do what you want with it. Uh, do you also need things like, um, I've heard people lining up to uh, volunteer, let's say a, an in-law apartment for a, a refugee or, a, you know, may, they may be large landlords who have the resources to um, either donate or, or offer at a, a reduced rent their space. Is something like that or a, a car, yes. or, you know, I, I don't know what else you might need. No, absolutely. In fact, I, I, you know, you know, mostly, mostly we need, we need, uh, uh, cash contributions so that we can pay the people that are going to do the work and find the housing. However, a huge need right now, you hit on a, a very important need there, Joe, and that is that we are in need of housing for people. Um, and some of that housing may be temporary while we find a place uh, in, in a city that is uh, more affordable and more sustainable for a family. So we are looking for, so if somebody on your show says, hey, I've got a, a place we're not using, or we've got a, an apartment we're not using, or we're empty nesters and we're in Florida most of the year, whatever the case may be, have them, uh, you know, they can reach out and go to iine.org, get on our website, shoot us an email and we'll get back to people. So yes, we've had a few people reach out specifically about housing that's been very generous. And we have kind of a list of, of places where we have some options in case we can't find affordable housing for people right away. Well, that's good to hear. I happen to know that uh, Hubwonk listeners are very generous. They support us uh, at Pioneer Institute and, and this show. So uh, I think if you've inspired uh, a few of them, I think uh, you're, uh, you, you will get a response. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very uh, optimistic there. That All right, we're getting, that we, um, we're getting close to the end of our show. Um, uh, you've, you've shared with our listeners how they can um, reach you. I just want to ask an aside. I, in my research in looking at 
the organizations like yours, there are many that are affiliated with uh, religious organizations, Christian, mm-hmm. Jewish, uh, others. I- is that uh, typical? And how? why is it that you think so many people of faith are drawn to this particular mission? Um, uh, or if I just sort of, um, you know, mischaracterize it, um, you, you shared with us your, your deep faith or your background in, 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 uh, the mm-hmm. Jesuit tradition. Um, why do you think that is, why is it that community loves to help refugees? I, uh, I think for several reasons, first of all, I mean, I, I do think faith is a, is a central part of what, uh, what draws many people, uh, to this work around the country and around the world. So a lot of the uh, voluntary organizations are faith-based organizations, the Lutherans, uh, Church World Services, certainly Catholic, uh, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is the largest uh, resettlement-led organization in the country. Uh, the Jewish faith uh, has a Hebrew Aid Society, um, Immigrant Aid Society. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a, a Catholic uh, who grew up, uh, at, went to Boston College, was influenced by the Jesuits. So I think a lot of us who do this work are um, motivated by faith. Not everybody, you know, this is a, the USCRI and the International Institute of New England is is not a faith-based organization. And we have people uh, here in um, uh, our organization uh, that are uh, have, have no faith or, and people of various faiths. But I would say, you know, faith in general motivates uh, people to serve others and it motivates people to help those in need. And uh, that desire um, leads people uh, to refugee resettlement work because you are helping people who have been through awful circumstances. And by doing refugee resettlement work, you have a chance to make a profound difference in the lives of the people who have suffered and um, who just want to get back on their feet and get restarted. Indeed, that's a great way to uh, to end the show. Uh, I think both of us appreciate that uh, uh, that we were so lucky to be born in the United States. We hit the ultimate lottery of all lotteries. Uh, others weren't as fortunate. So. Uh, you're doing a lot to uh, to help those who uh, are in profound, profound need. So thank you very much, Jeff, for joining the show. Uh, your your wisdom has, I think, uh, done a lot for our listeners. Well, thank you, Joe. Appreciate being on the show. Enjoyed it. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on iTunes or your podcatcher. If you want to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be useful if you gave us a five-star rating or a favorable review. Naturally, uh, it is always encouraged to uh, share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me for episode topics uh, in the future, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. <music>